0: So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT, or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bilal brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here, we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students, and after graduation, what we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Debussy, Class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Welcome everyone to episode one. It's great to have you here. We're starting off with our Meet the Board series, in which we'll be interviewing every member of the MIT Arab Alumni Association. And first off is Salman Al Dakhil, who's our Director of Regional Development. An MIT alum who's dabbled in consulting, finance, and banking, holds a BA in Writing and Humanistic Studies, as well as an MBA, he calls Riyadh home, but spent time in Boston and Chicago, among other places, through his educational and professional journey. This is Salman al and our guest of honor for today's episode. Hello, Salman.
1: Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here with you all.
0: Let's start off with what your role is on the MIT AAA.
1: Myself, I'm a director of regional development, and the mandate is as broad uh, as it sounds. So we're trying to um, develop relationships with a variety of entities, um, just to strengthen the connection between Middle East uh, and MIT. Now these uh, can come in the form of kind of educational uh, collaborations, uh, whether it's working to introduce local educational institutions to MIT, help create a funnel for future Arab students to move, whether for undergraduate or graduate level studies, whether it's linking up with corporates here, uh, that have certain specialized uh, or special type of content that they like exposure to and somehow linking up uh, with MIT departments, whether it's you know, providing funding for certain students. Or, so, so it's really quite broad. At the outset, we're targeting educational institutions just because it's the most intuitive, if you will, kind of connection. Um, but we're moving on to, to kind of encompass uh, a more, a kind of a larger scope with time. So it will include corporates, stuff around specialized content development, Ideally, also, if we can broaden it to uh, look towards uh, kind of issues of how we can support kind of um, uh, employment, uh, upskilling, what have you. So I think there's a lot of room to do good stuff. Uh, we just need to be focused on uh, how we approach it because it's very easy to spread oneself too thin and end up doing nothing. So hopefully we'll have a manageable scope, but we'll kind of reach uh, some effective depths.
0: Salman, you worked on helping Arabs in the Middle East to apply to MIT. Uh, through the College Arab Mentorship Program. Uh, What's one thing you did not know when you applied to MIT that you wish students applying to MIT know now?
1: I don't necessarily know what uh, it was about my application that worked well for the admissions committee, what didn't, but there's definitely stuff I know I didn't necessarily focus on when I applied and turned out to be kind of an, an integral part of MIT and the MIT experience. Um, and I'd say that specific element is that, um, it's maybe the, the, the point of collaboration. Uh, so we tend to focus a lot on individual successes and achievements in our applications. Um, and something that struck me about the uh, MIT culture was this extreme culture of collaboration. Uh, as well, so in addition to kind of you know competition on the individual level and i and I felt actually a lot of time the competition there was between uh kind of just a person and him or herself um, but in terms of how the the cohort was viewed, there seemed to be a lot more collaboration and excitement about working together to build things to problem solve to do x y z. And it was one of the biggest takeaways actually for me from that experience, and one that I actually miss uh, quite dearly because um, a lot of the professional settings uh, that we exist in today and operate in don't necessarily mimic uh, that extent of collaboration, cooperation. And, you know, apart from it feeling nice because we're human beings and, you know, creating things together feels nice, just in terms of uh, the efficacy of the outcomes and the efficiency with which. Uh, They came to fruition as well. Um, That was definitely a highlight. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, um, putting a bit more focus as well on how you've done things together and succeeded with others versus simply focusing on the successes you've driven
2: uh, towards yourself.
0: So Salman, that's really interesting. Uh, You went to school in Saudi Arabia. How did that differ from your experience at MIT?
1: Uh, sure. So I don't know if it's an apples to apples comparison, but I think it's a good question. Definitely less uh, competitive. So if we just take a step back, I think any average high school in any country is not going to be the same as kind of one of the more preeminent institutions where uh, people come from all over the world uh, to kind of operate, compete, collaborate, etc. Uh, so given that, uh, some key d- kind of differentiators were uh, that uh, MIT was more competitive, uh, and I think actually that that brought with it a um, a very important learning for me. So so um, maybe it's not to re- nice to reflect in this way, but if I'm being honest, um, I think when I was in high school, I uh, my ego inflated a bit because uh, I just I just did very well. You know, I definitely worked hard. I put in the time. You know, things some things came uh, more. Uh, easily than others, but it doesn't mean everything was a cakewalk, but I I was able to succeed and kind of come out on top, which felt well. Um, Now, having done that consistently over the years, um, haven't really been, you know, competed with much, I kind of felt that, uh, you know, this is it, right, and that's kind of my absolute position, if you will. Uh, It was a very important (laughs) realization and reality check when I went to MIT, and I wasn't the smartest person in the bunch anymore. You know, I was not necessarily the least smartest, but there were also many others to contend with. Uh, there was a lot more um, at stake there. So I think it was a great reality check. And actually, I'll give you a small example uh, <clears throat> about this ego. But I'm glad I got it checked quite early on. I, uh, Yeah, I, I took a class, one of the electives I had to take. Uh, it was 3091. Introduction to materials science and engineering. And uh, I took the class, and my first class, I felt the pace was quite slow. You know, I was surprised, you know, at MIT, uh, they're, you know, teaching me content that I learned in like 10th or 11th grade. Uh, And I thought, you know what, clearly this is an easy intro class, you know, so I decided to stop showing up to classes and then just show up to the midterm. Uh, let me go ahead and say that was a terrible decision because I sh- I rolled up to the midterm and within five minutes I was done, uh, not because of my supreme intelligence, but because I didn't know I couldn't answer more than like one question on the exam. Turns out I think they had covered And driven by ego, I thought, no, kalas, I'll just use logic. I'll use what I know. You know, I'm pretty sure it's it's, it's sufficient to, given the pace at which I saw material kind of content unfold in the first class. So incorrect assumption. And I got a ve- it was the worst grade I've ever gotten in my life. It was a 23%. I'll never forget it. We were sitting there, yeah, and they had the great distribution on the uh, screen. It was oh projected, and you see the normal distribution, and then it disappears, and then far off you see this one little blip. It's like I don't know ten standard deviations <laughs> away from the mean. I'm like, oh man, that can't be me, and that was me. Um, and it burns, you know. And even now, as I tell the story, I'm a bit uh, anxious or uncomfortable. But you know what? You need that discomfort sometimes. It's a reality check to remind you to, you know, to to be on your toes. To always keep working hard at your craft, whatever it is, you know, just because you're kind of on top today, don't get lazy and complacent and right. egotistical. Like life is constantly changing. There are people who are doing lots of smart work, who are hardworking and driven. And so, it's it's a reminder to to um, to be modest uh, and to remain hardworking and diligent. So, and and to be honest, as mm-hmm. as much as I learned at MIT, that is by far the best lesson that I learned because it it I think still serves me well to this day.
0: Great. I I totally agree that when you get to MIT, you know, to really qualify to get to MIT, you you have to have these great grades, and so it's kind of a like you said, an ego check when uh, you realize that not everyone can be best in class when everyone used to be best in class. Um, so. But uh, I think what I've heard a lot from students is that it being um, around other people who who had done well in high school, kind of lets you explore different interests. So I I wanted to get into your major, um, which uh, ended up uh, on the humanities side uh, at a tech school. So uh, how did you decide um, to, I I heard you, you weren't originally on this path. So how did you end up on this path? But
1: you know, even before I get into this, if you if you allow me, Donna, just uh, address maybe the first part of your sentence, um, which actually, so so, it's fascinating if you think about it. The the kind of archetype, right, or your your typical MIT student. There is a profile, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, we all are individuals and we're unique in our own ways, definitely. But there are a few elements that we have had that we had to share in order to get to MIT. Right. Right. Uh, one part of it is probably choosing to forego a lot of immediate, maybe indulgences in order to kind of buckle down and you know do whatever you need to do for kind of a better future. Let's say more of kind of long-term decision making versus short-term. When many of our peers. Or doing uh, otherwise, um, a certain type <laughs> of rigor, assuming certain types of stress early on, and right. and those. <clears throat> and I'm not saying, by the way, that it necessarily translates into the best people, right? But it translates into people um, who are and characters, right? That are that are. Um, Let's say prevalent at MIT. Now, one <laughs> of the things that's interesting is you go from being a minority, right, in that initial pool that exactly. you were, to being surrounded, not just by peers, like who, who you know, may ha- maybe had comparable academic achievement, but also who had comparable struggles, mm-hmm. right? And maybe the flavors may differ, but the underlying reality, the structure of it was similar, right? I had to forego a lot of things in order to kind of buckle down, study, to get good grades to do this. So, you know, how has that manifest in your lives? And how has that translated into, to, you know, uh, feelings about things that are foregone or maybe hopes about the future. And so you actually end up all of a sudden having a population with similar certain types of challenging experiences that otherwise you couldn't, um, you know, you didn't have people to relate to about. And you can unpack it together and kind of new type of friendships when, and it's nice to be able to share learnings and kind of what worked, you know, tips and tricks, what worked for one another. Right. Um, and just connecting on that unexpected level, let's say. Maybe it's unexpected because it's less than shiny and ideal, but it's still meaningful and very human. Um, right. And I found that really nice, too. So
0: your other characteristics, the ones that aren't just you're the smart kid, uh, start to flourish when you're around people like when you're at MIT and Like I've heard from a lot of my friends that they finally got to show their artistic side, they finally got to show their love of puzzles or building or anything like that, and it it wasn't tied directly and solely to their intelligence. Uh, It really let them shine their personality in ways that they hadn't been able to before.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's one of the amazing things about MIT. It's so inclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's ironic in a way because it's so quote unquote exclusive if you think <laughs> about it in terms of like acceptance rates. But then when you're there, you realize it's it's such an open environment that mm-hmm. that, that that really supports uh, and amplifies. Uh, collaboration, cooperation, and individuality. And so, you know, any so-called quirk that you may have had and you may have shied away from showing in the past, you know, you're encouraged to, you know, embrace and celebrate. And I think that's so wonderful because, again, you know, you have, you know, folks who have good grades, et cetera, and people look to, you know, people who go to MIT as, But I think there's something as well that we need to not forget, right? People are people. And, yeah. and 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 maybe I'm projecting here a, a bit, <laughs> but I, I think at least for me, uh, you know, one of the things that defines the MIT, uh, there's a little bit around insecure overachievement. Mm. There's something about that in there, and it's fantastic. The overachievement part is what's emphasized, and I want to talk a little bit about the insecure part, which I mm-hmm. think is important. I don't think people are born insecure. I think we insecurity is a function of many things, um, but one. One thing that doesn't help with that is uh, lack of acceptance and lack of celebration of uniqueness and difference. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about MIT, I think, is that it mitigates a little bit for that in that it absolutely embraces you and supports you. And as long as you're not hurting other people in your pursuit of this individuality, you know, it really supports going out and exploring who you are in your nuances and, you know, linking up with similar people and doing things. And so being, you know, it's a pro, it's a positive. It's not a con (laughs) or something that you should seek to hide. Um, And I think that's really important in the emotional development of a human being because look, I mean, at the end of the day, you can learn all the math and science that you want, but if you're unhappy and don't feel okay as a human being, I think you'll be quite limited in what you can do for the world and with the world. And so I think that's a really important aspect
2: that I think MIT um, serves well.
0: Also lets you embrace your weirdness, (laughs) whatever it may be. Yeah, it really does, it (laughs) really does. So back to the topic of your sure. your major, the main question. Yeah. yeah. So.
1: So uh, so I graduated with a degree in uh, writing and humanistic studies. Uh, that's course twenty one W. In terms of, I'll give you an interesting st- statistic. In terms of uh, my graduating cohort from the department, I was fifty percent of it. So it was me and another fella. His name was uh Dave Brescia. He's a very cool guy. Uh. We, we studied together. And uh, yeah, he and I comprised the two graduating kind of full-time students uh, in the uh, 21W.
0: Amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so my story, okay, so I'll tell you. It uh, Maybe my story will highlight a bit of naivete that I, you know, nobody likes to think they're naive, but <clears throat> it is what it is. So um, I went to MIT. Uh, I love science. I've always have, um, whether you want to call it science or otherwise, I've just always liked to understand why things are the way they are and just how they operate around me. Right? Very simple. Just a, just a curious human being. Um, so naturally I went to MIT. Uh, I think physics of the sciences was the most, uh, let's say, or the most intuitive path to understanding at least the world in general, uh, for me. So I decided to go down that route. Uh, so I majored in physics. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. Um, my first experience, and I loved it. So let me say, uh, I loved learning about it in class. I loved the math, the kind of the elegance of the solution sets. It all makes sense. Then I worked uh, in a lab. It wasn't direct physics kind of application. Uh, it was the lab for manufacturing and productivity. Uh, it's actually at the intersection of Vassar and uh, Mass Ave. Uh, in the basement, it was my first ever lab. It was a year up. Uh, actually. And uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I learned a lot, but it opened up my eyes to a couple of things that I had not known previously. First, the cadence uh, of work in a lab was a bit slower, let's say, uh, than I think I needed uh, to feel engaged and stimulated and excited. And number two, uh, maybe this one took a little more time for me to realize, But I actually didn't like the work that much. I mean, it was fun to feel like I'm contributing to something and I do it and I, you know, and it was fine, but I just wasn't super excited about it. And that summer, I'll never forget. I was reflecting. It doesn't make sense. You know, I'm at this great school. I have this great opportunity. I'm doing seemingly what seems to make sense, but I just don't feel like very fulfilled. And I hate to say it, but upon reflection, I, I realized that I think I'm much more excited about the idea of learning physics in the classroom and what that entails And I think I'm very much enamored with the idea of being a physicist. You know, who doesn't want to mold himself after like Richard Feynman, right? Who is not excited about the stories of like Robert Oppenheimer and what he contributed to the world? But if I'm being honest, I think I wanted to be more like them. But I wasn't excited in doing the work itself. So once I had that realization, kind of physics in the real world versus kind of physics in the classroom and what I had in mind, uh, I had to switch gears. There honestly wasn't anything else that I was particularly excited about in terms of kind of long-term career trajectory or what have you. So I just was very much kind of short-sighted in my decision making. To be honest, it played out well. Uh, I'm, I'm happy about that now. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, luckily I was more of a risk taker then. But um, I ended up switching to 21W and this for the simple reason that I'd never left a literature and writing class without feeling so enriched. And I don't necessarily mean enriched, like, you know, I know so much more about Wordsworth or what have you. No, but enriched, like, I feel just full. Mm -hmm. I leave class not feeling like anything is missing. You know, during those kind of 90 minutes of just discussion, taking apart, you know, content from folks who lived a couple of hundred years ago. And while the details may differ, right, the underlying struggles and hopes and dreams and confusion and just, you know, the nature of being human, how it just jumps off the page and presents itself as content. Yeah. And then you're able to just discuss with people around you and you're able to connect. And it's just so it just felt very right, let's Mm -hmm. say. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I knew what I was going to do with it. I, I had no idea, but <laughs> I knew graduating from MIT, I get a job, you know, I'm pretty flexible. I don't need the fanciest job. I can build my kind of build my way up. Mm-hmm. But I knew that at that point in time, I wanted to have more of that kind of exposure. I wanted more of those experiences, more of that content. So yeah, I switched gears to 21W, I switched majors much to my parents' dismay at that point. Uh, my parents are typically kind of kind of old school, right? So in their minds, um, you know, that you end up working in a field uh, that you have studied. So they're like, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to work as a journalist, as this or that, you know, how are you going to, you know, f- fund your life? And they're worried about all of those things. And, um, and you know, rightly so, uh, understandable. But uh, I pushed back, uh, and I just stuck with it. Took an extra year, wrote a thesis, uh, took some extra classes, and uh, graduated. And if I'm being honest, I think it was, you know, the best decision that I could have made. Um, Both in terms of the content that I learned, the relationships and the friendships that I've made. And yeah, just being able to spend that time uh, thinking about life in that way and unpacking content together. Um, And obviously, uh, you know, having a professor there to guide the discussion uh, with a light hand is is extremely effective
2: mm-hmm.
1: and these spaces don't really exist if you think about it kind of in our quote unquote real world like today if i wanted to had, have a comparable experience it's very rare you you, you can't have that It'll outside take a of academia it. yeah mm-hmm. outside of academia exactly um so yeah very valuable experience i uh, would absolutely do it over again
0: i totally agree about the feeling you have uh in these literature courses i think one of my favorite uh classes that i took was uh, reading and writing autobiography and biography and was that
1: with Kenneth Manning? Yeah. Professor Kenneth. Manning? Is he still around?
0: He is yes.
1: He was my professor and my thesis advisor oh, by the wow. way. Yeah he's fantastic.
0: Yeah he, he was just I he was very um, strict I would say at the beginning but I think yeah. uh, the kind of dialogue that he wants you to get into is just beyond what I had been expecting and I, I totally get what you're saying about uh, having those discussions. I think that's something that I miss a lot um, now that I've graduated. But uh, he was a, a great professor.
1: Absolutely. And it's and really, there's no lack of professors like him you know, at MIT. They're mm-hmm. really the humanities departments. are, And that's one of the things that I always found a little bit, maybe heartbreaking is not the word, but MIT is known for its output in science and engineering, et cetera. And that's amazing. And, and, and maybe when I was there also in about 2009, I think, you know, there was a splash uh, because of Juno Diaz. So the humanities department as well mm. shown a, a bit. But uh, it's it's yeah, I still think it's far underrated given the quality of just folks and thinking um, that's there. It really is wonderful.
0: Yeah. So uh, on the topic of graduation, though. So shortly after your graduation, you started working uh, in the consulting world uh, for McKinsey. Uh, As a business analyst, can you tell us how you got into this, you know, after finding, you know, your passion in writing and literature? What did that feel like? Was it an easy shift? Sure.
1: So if I'm being completely honest, I didn't intend to work in writing. Journalism and the tight deadlines, I don't like, I don't need that kind of anxiety. And I don't think I'd handle it well uh, in terms of, you know, writing kind of uh, fiction, novels, etc., mm-hmm. Not really something I thought I was uh, going to do at that point. So really, it was just something I wanted to, to uh, it was an experience I enjoyed and I wanted to do more of, though kind of post-MIT life was still quite uncertain. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to move back to Saudi to be around my family. That's what my That's where they are, my nuclear and extended, as well as, you know, the folks I grew up with. So I knew I was coming back to Saudi. So I did that. I moved back to Saudi. And uh, at the time, uh, in 2011, I was... So either you go into industry right? Or you do something more general like consulting or investment banking. In terms of industry, there wasn't a specific industry that I was particularly excited about or excited to work in, nor was there a particular function either. So I decided, let me be a generalist. Let me try and understand Uh, what the landscape is like through my work as a generalist. And then hopefully with time, that'll help me figure out kind of some spaces or functions where I'd like to operate. And then I can make that decision. Ah. So so really going into consulting was a bit like, how can I buy time in an environment where I will still be developed? I will be exposed. I'll do good work. But hopefully through the variety of experiences, it'll help me figure out what my next step is. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up landing in consulting. So I did that for approximately three years. I was based in Saudi. Work was primarily public sector. It was, it was fascinating. I got to see. I got to do. You know, do some work in affordable housing, uh, healthcare, technical and vocational training, um, economic uh, development. Wow. So yeah, yeah, there was a, really a lot of variety of content. So it was a great experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I appreciate that very much. Towards the end of my time at McKinsey, uh, I actually I worked on uh, due diligence uh, for a certain company, mm-hmm. and there was. You know, strategy work is very interesting. I found, though, at one point that I was starting to um, crave uh, some concreteness or not implementation, if you will, but kind of uh, outcomes that were more immediate. Uh, and maybe this is related to validation, right? You work hard on something, mm-hmm. you know, you submit it to the client, and then you hope that in five years' time the strategy will, you know, come to fruition, and then you know you'll be proud, you'll see your work. I think I started craving seeing stuff in a, in a bit more immediate or uh, near term kind of fashion. So the concreteness of the the, the finance project. Um, Kind of uh, opened my eyes. But you know what, let me let me look a little bit towards transaction related work more, you know, so it's similar. There are similarities between investment banking and consulting. So the client facing nature of the work, the hours, the methods of engagement and communication, so the frequent presentations. Uh, deliverables, um, constant progress updates, et cetera. So the, the, the way of working is is similar, even though the output may be a bit different. With one, it's a transaction. With one, it's a strategy document. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I decided, you know what? I'd like to explore a bit more what that could look like. So when I once I finished my three years with McKinsey, I worked uh, with a family business, mm-hmm. uh, which was a uh, investment bank. I worked with them for a year. Uh, in parallel, applied for grad school. I, I decided I wanted to learn finance because I'd never really studied finance. I picked up, you know, the concepts that I needed uh, within my projects at McKinsey, but I didn't feel I had a robust uh, understanding. And to be honest, I think I just really missed the classroom as well. I mean, <laughs> I'm a nerd at heart and any excuse to be in a structured environment like that, right. you know, I'll take it.
0: Yeah. So that's, so how, that's, you, it. I, so that's how you got That's to how Canada. I ended up
1: going back to school. Okay. Yep. Yep. I decided, yep, I just studied for my GMATS, applied, etc. cetera, uh, was, you know, feel very privileged to have been accepted to Booth. And then I decided to go learn finance there.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what was your MBA like?
1: Fantastic, uh, fantastic, and zipped by too quickly. Um, <laughs> the Booth, yeah. So, so the Booth MBA, I think one of the things it's most known for is its flexibility. I can definitely attest to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there are certain uh, kind of areas of content where you have to take a class or two but in terms of the variety of classes uh, offered within those kind of general topic areas you you know you can more or less kind of design your own degree uh, so it's quite nice there's okay. a lot of flexibility in that yeah that is fantastic for me to be honest as well the 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 mba experience was a great time just to step back and think for a moment mm-hmm. mckinsey is great and i it's rigor really helped me develop But there's limited time to disconnect and think. And a weekend is not sufficient. Sometimes you need to disconnect, really, like, you know, disconnect from the project, its details and nuances, but also emotionally, just disconnect and you yourself be kind of in a very – I don't want to call it isolated, but in a place where you can you're not stimulated by outside things and maybe just look inward mm-hmm. uh, and be a bit honest with yourself and reflect kind of how the past few years been, you know what worked, what didn't, you know, what do I want today? Is it what I wanted when I set out then? And just kind of doing this a little bit of life planning, uh, calibration reflection, what have you. Right. And the time and the headspace uh, that the MBA afforded was was fantastic for that.
0: So it was a good reflection point for you
1: absolutely it was great because i had the time to reflect just because previously i couldn't i was just very busy mm-hmm. and just the nature of my work but booth was great in the time to reflect also chicago is a great city yeah. i don't know if you've been have you ever
0: not yet i i had a plan to go before everything got locked down for covid
1: yeah definitely if you can make it a point to visit it's definitely an underrated city it has fantastic music scene mm. fantastic food scene it's it's a modest city, so you don't re- deal with a lot of egos, but there are a lot of great experiences mm-hmm. to be had. Uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that about Chicago, Saraha. And um, the MBA itself is fantastic. I mean, you could take, you know, e- relatively easy classes to super rigorous if you'd like. So it really allows you to to tailor your experience to what you want it to be. I mean, and I had to... In the summer of my first year, I ended up, you know, doing an internship at a nonprofit in Berlin, working with like Syrian refugees who are working on startup ideas. Oh, wow. And yeah, and Booth was willing to fund me. Uh, you know, I just had to you know, apply for it. They were willing to fund me. Uh, they were willing to open up. Uh, kind of that avenue for other students who wanted to go work uh, with this nonprofit, with refugees there. So mm-hmm. there's really a lot of flexibility to support you in doing what you want, as long as what you want to do is has some sort of positive outcome or output.
0: So you mentioned earlier that um, you knew you wanted to go back uh, to Saudi Arabia to be close to your family. But, uh, you know, having some experience both in Boston and Chicago, Uh, Even in Berlin, at any point, did you consider uh, living abroad? And what were some of the uh, things that you were thinking about when making that decision?
1: So uh, definitely, I mean, you know, when you you find yourself sitting in a city and you're just, and I'm sure you've had those moments Mm -hmm. where you're just sitting there or at a cafe or in like the middle of a really good discussion, like, wow, this is a great moment, you know? And you kind of, it's like the world freezes and you look around and you kind of take in all of the elements that are making it what it is. Uh, I definitely you know when I have those moments, I'm like, oh man, these don't necessarily all exist where I plan to be long term. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, and it's, you know, I think it's, it's very important to have those moments because let's say at, you know, t equals zero, I have a plan and I say my plan at this point in time is to go back to this place and work in this and do that. But that plan is based on what I know about myself mm-hmm. and what I think I know I want at that point in time. Right. But the reality is that we also evolve as time passes. And sometimes we're aware consciously of this evolution and what has changed within us and what we expect of ourselves and life. And sometimes we're not. And I think it's important in those moments of reflection, sometimes the subconscious elements that we may not have been aware of kind of surface. And it's important to be honest and recognize them and say, okay. Now, all of these things exist within me, and I have these wants and expectations and things I'd like to do. Does my original plan, you know, is it able to deliver on them? Or do I need to revisit it given this? Mm -hmm. Or will I just suppress the new learnings and just kind of stick to what I initially planned? So, I think there's always this kind of constant re-evaluation and asking oneself, you know, where am I compared to what I've planned? And is my initial plan still valid? uh, What have you. So, Kind of that's the thought Mm -hmm. process that I go through every time I have those moments. And I continue to go through those, even as I currently reside in Saudi with my family. I've checked all those boxes that I initially set out to do. You know, if the parameters change such that it doesn't make sense to be here anymore or, you know, there's a larger draw elsewhere for other reasons, I'll absolutely be open to doing that. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for us to be honest with ourselves and kind of fluid um, with what we find because, yeah, sticking to, you know, what I decided when I was, you know the person I was in the past is very different from what I want today yeah. and who I am today. Ideally it the, the delta isn't too large.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: otherwise, you know, you have to go back and ask yourself, why is the delta so large?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But but assuming it's not the case, I think it's okay to 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 be open with yourself and you just recalibrate as you move mm-hmm.
0: forward. I think, Salman, listening to you, I, I definitely see the influence of Professor Manning. These are the types of questions <laughs> he would always have us ask ourselves. And, you know, like you you really, uh, I think something that he really helps with is having those reflection moments and thinking about yes. uh, everything that you do and, and why you do it. And I think that's what I found the most difficult when I was writing my short autobiography Um, is uh, what am I not talking about that I should be thinking about? Um, So I I think that's just really inspiring.
1: And, you know, I think he he really did do us, I mean, a, a great one, really a great one, because I mean, not to generalize, but there are many friends and folks I know in my life who are not necessarily living based on what they want today. Uh, they're doing it based on decisions they made in the past, and of course, I'm not. I'm not advocating for just complete. You know, if you wake up today and you say, "Oh, I don't like that anymore," and just kind of ditch your responsibilities, obligations. No, not at all. You know, you wind things down in a responsible way,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: you need to be open to um, accepting that maybe your opinion has changed. And I, I find sometimes there's a bit of friction involved and I think it relates to ego as well Mm -hmm. people don't like going back on what they have decided especially if they had decided in a public fashion right I think it's okay I think we should be much more honest and open about how we're human and at one point based on the inputs we had and we knew we made this decision right whereas today I have different inputs myself I feel different and the world around me is different Mm -hmm. so I'm most likely going to take a different direction and that's okay
0: right but there's typically kind of an attachment between uh, your decisions and and who you are as a person, and so it's hard for you to uh, back down from whatever you believe in and even if it's no longer relevant
1: however, you no know, so I agree with that, but i think I think sometimes we conflate kind of who we are in terms of our principles yeah. and morals and who we are quote unquote in terms of the behavior that we the behaviors that we issue, which are presumably kind of reflecting our morals and behaviors, right? Mm. Kind of my decision on whether to work at company X or company B, you know, sh- unless they are two vastly different companies, like one is a nonprofit <laughs> saving lives and the other is killing. Okay, then then yes. But if they're not that different, then they probably don't reflect a shift in my morals and behaviors, but maybe operationally, the way I want to live today has differed. So I should be mm-hmm. okay making that decision.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I, I just hope we're not kind of held back by ego, I guess. And just be open to being honest with ourselves based on what we find
2: and just move forward.
0: Yeah. So, so we've walked through your undergraduate degree. We've even t- touched on your high school uh, experiences, your MBA. Uh, where are you now? And how do you feel?
2: Oh man, that's a huge question. I
1: okay. I can give you my coordinates, but I, <laughs> no, <good>. I, uh, <laughs> okay. So I'm now in Saudi. I've, uh, it's been two years since I finished my MBA where I, when I had decided I'm going to work in investment banking back in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- very happy with that decision. Um, I love being here surrounded by my family, friends. It is a bit challenging, though, if I'm being honest, because um, especially if you've had the luxury to go and study uh, outside of your hometown yeah, uh, and you've had the privilege to make such good and deep uh, connections and relationships with people, it becomes a bit challenging. You know, not least because of the time difference, which makes kind of catching up calls uh, trickier to schedule. Yeah, but it's just hard because you're a bit more inaccessible. So that aside, though, that's still a relevant factor. Um, I'm happy with my decision to be back here again. So for me, it was uh, predicated on access to kind of family. I also, uh, I think we had discussed this down maybe briefly before, and, and maybe it's worth mentioning here, but kind of. An Arab educated abroad, you know, do you want to stick around abroad or do you want to move back? Do you think you can have more value add at home versus uh, elsewhere? I think there's also that component uh, where we want to feel useful. Uh, We want to feel like we're adding value. Um, So I definitely feel um, that I'm adding value, however, you know, kind of moderate uh, in its magnitude to whatever I do, whether it's at work or or in my personal or, or professional life. So I'm happy with where I am. But uh, I still go through the kind of uh, frequent um, reflection, recalibration. I think it's very important. Uh, And whether it's professionally or like, you know, friends, people you spend time with, or it's basically around your decision making process, right? Mm -hmm. And I think... You know, one of the things that uh, COVID has shown, while I thought I had honed my decision making process, there is still a lot more improvement to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that I actually have a lot of fat around how I operate that can be trimmed. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, and time reallocated to other things that actually give me a lot more happiness in life um that i previously did not know i was missing out on right but without this forcing mechanism of kind of being alone i anyway what i'm trying to say is there's there's a lot of value in revisiting mm-hmm. and just kind of really looking closely at how we live whether it's how we spend our time the people we surround ourselves with the the purposes we align ourselves with etc and it's okay if at the end of the day we're still on track that's fantastic mm-hmm. but if we find that there's a bit of a delta I think that's a good reason to look at oneself and kind of just reevaluate, right? Because life is so short and I don't think any of us want to look back and have any of those kind of I wish type of moments or what if.
0: So for a moment of nostalgia, I think we we are nearing the end of this episode. Uh, I want to see if we can get through some rapid fire questions on uh, MIT life, uh, you know, for all our alumni who are missing MIT life. Uh, and the first one is, what was your favorite building?
1: You know, I don't think I had a favorite. I think it was uh, Hayden Library.
0: So that library itself. That's the next question. Is uh, is that your best study spot?
1: Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely.
0: I really loved that view from Hayden, just looking out onto the it's Charles. fantastic. Yeah.
1: And, you know, in addition to the view, they actually had a lot of random, like, aisles of, like, you know, I remember when I'd be procrastinating from my 803 exam, <laughs> which, like, you know, no, I, I, I need kind of some different content to just, you know, refresh my mind before I go back. to I'd mm-hmm. go and just get lost in, like, short stories from, like, West Africa wow. about the moon. And, and so there's so much also really good content in there.
0: Right. They're actually revamping it this semester, um, so hopefully it, it keeps that aspect of it. Your go-to destination off-campus?
1: Boston Commons.
0: Yes. Great. That's a great one. It's wonderful. Yeah. Right. So that also leads to the next question. What's one thing you miss about MIT?
1: Everything minus uh, the anxiety around grades. Yeah, honestly, what I miss about it is—is is, uh, so everything is was not an exaggeration. But the people, the people are make it what it is. I mean, the funding, you know, kind of supports the lab development and the the, the campus and the infrastructure, what have you. But it's the people—people people who are excited about discovering and understanding things about life, whether it's the physical world or about themselves—and who are open and are not um, hindered by ego to discuss and try and explore and just kind of make the best of the experience together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, I miss that dearly. Because you'll find that that's not, I mean, I mean, Dana, you you work now, you know, you've emerged from the MIT <laughs> kind of concentrated bubble, right? And the reality is you have good folks in the world, they're just dispersed. And I think it requires a concentration of them in a certain way to enable that kind of culture. Right. Uh, and it's quite unique and, and amazing.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I'm already starting to miss it and it's only been a few months. <laughs> but I think that's a, a great place for us to stop. Thank you so much, Salman, for joining us on this podcast. You know, our first few coming out. We're really excited. Uh, oh, your, your story has been really a great one to to hear about. So thank you. Well,
1: Thank you so much. But actually, I'm honored that y'all uh, considered me for this. And I, you know, just knowing the folks as well that we have on the board, yeah. it's going to be a very interesting uh, set of stories and inspiring, uh, definitely. So, yeah, thank you for taking the time to structure and, and organize these so also lots of folks can um, enjoy them.
0: That was Salman al dakhil Director of Regional Development on the board of the MIT Arab Alumni Association thanks for joining us for this first episode of unlimited we would love to get your feedback so please feel free to reach out to us on social media or on our website a great shout out to Bahur, our scripting team and Ma'moon Tukhan, who's on our editing team for making this all come together so thank you all and see you in the next episode